For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Who Will Lead? Good question. Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, it's been an interesting week, as Reg was uh, indicating. I just don't want to stand on this thing here. Um, leadership. It's uh, kind of appropriate, but I, I had already had this message in mind before any of the, you know, the more recent uh, political uh, events took place. But I think, in general, there's just a, a total lack of leadership in our country, in politics, just in, in, in civil life. And I, I think some of what we'll look into today might maybe give us some hope and maybe give us some direction, personally, as to what we can do in the, the times that we live. This message was really born out of the realization of the passing of an era, at least for me, um, with the death of one of the most, uh, or one of the influential individuals in our church tradition this uh, last few weeks. I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about how leadership transitions from one generation to another, or sometimes doesn't translation transition from one generation to another. And I really feel like in many ways we are moving into a new era, the ending of an old era, the passing of that previous leadership of those ministries, of different organizations and different churches that are associated with our tradition. What is next? We ask this question. I mean, I've been asking my question, what is next? Where do we go from here? What do we do now? And these are good questions to ask. And they're even better questions to ask before that leadership is gone and to make preparation. I don't think I'm the only one that asks these questions. They're important questions about the life of our church, the life of our church community, and our larger church tradition. We're all concerned, are we not, about our church, about if this church will be here in the future for our children, for our children to nurture their families in, for our children to raise their children in, and on and on. We want it to continue because we see the beauty and the value of this church family and, of course, the incredible gift of God's truth and the plan that he's working out in each one of us. And so we are concerned, and it's natural that we are concerned about leadership, about leadership in our church, about leadership in our larger church community, the association of churches and the churches of God community that we rely upon to aid one another, to help one another at different times. Who will lead those churches? Who will lead our general church community? Who will step forth? do that? Who will step into the shoes of the great teachers and evangelists and counselors of the past? Who will take on that role? Will anyone step into that role? Who will be the evangelists spreading the truth and continuing in what we used to call all the time the work? Do you remember that phrase? The work. And it's not something that we use very much anymore. And it, there may be some differing reasons why that's the case. But the work of God on the earth, reaching out to men and women and changing and converting lives. And that's something that we should be concerned about. Who's going to do those things? As I thought about it, I, I really, my mind just went to Elijah and his life journey, and I'm hoping I'm not jumping ahead in Steve's, uh, in, in Steve's uh, theme that he's working. Um, but Elijah and his ministry, and how his ministry passed 
from one generation to another. And it's a really interesting lesson for us to learn from for our church and for our time. Lessons of leadership and how we might go about transferring responsibility to those that come after us. So Elijah, as we know, was a very powerful, influential prophet of God who was mostly concerned with the, the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom by this time had divided, as Steve mentioned earlier, from the southern kingdom. And they were a separate kingdom, and, and they had their own rulers. And Elijah was working in that part of the world and dealing with those rulers, those ten northern tribes. He appears on the scene about 865 BCE with no fanfare at all. He appears on the scene by literally walking up to the king, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. He walks up to the king, says to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. He turns around and he walks away. Who was that crazy guy? What in the world? Who let him in here? Well, then the rain stopped coming. It says in verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here, and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And for the next three years, three years, there was no rain or dew on Israel. Imagine what is that. What is that like? What would that be like for us? In this past summer, I had to go out to my lawn and, and treat and patch small patches, right? Because they were just burning in the sun. Three years. There wouldn't be any lawns. There'd be very little food. Very little food. And this isn't a situation where, hey, we know that there's a famine coming, so for seven years you get to save up. Now this is out of the blue. No preparation for this. There will be no rain. Do you think it would get people's attention? It might just, uh, hey, who, where did we find that crazy guy that came in here and said something about the rain? Drought. But with drought... Well, obviously, it leads to famine. And when there's famine, there is sickness. There's malnutrition and death. And then, what also comes when there's famine and sickness and death? We have a modern term for it now, right? It's called food insecurity. Right? People go to war over food. And so the whole society is at risk. Everything that they've built is in danger. There's regional instability that can come out of these situations as nations compete over resources. And even in time, the brook that Elijah was drinking from dries up. He's not unaffected by what he has, has been the vessel to bring to the people. He's affected by the same condition. He has to go through it with everybody else. Verse 8, it says, The word of the Lord came to him, to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zephaneth, if I say that right, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to that place. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Hey, please bring me water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And so she said, As the Lord lives, I do not have any bread. I only have a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and 
die. This is all we've got left. And I'm going to have to watch my child die. And Elijah says to her, do not fear. Go and do as, I, as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away. She did according to the word of Elijah. And she, and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which she spoke to the light. Fantastic miracle. God providing for not only for Elijah, but giving Elijah an opportunity to bless others. He goes on from miracle to miracle. And as we read later, this woman's son dies of a sickness. And Elijah prays to God for her to be restored again to life. An incredible individual. He's obedient to God. He does not deviate or question. There's no indication at this point that he doubts anything that God has told him to do. He follows God's instructions. Even though he himself is at risk. He's at risk by what's going on in the community and the lack of food and everything else. And, of course, God provides for him. But he's also compassionate. He provides for the needs of this widow and her son. Isn't that one of the qualities we would admire about a good to be compassionate. That in the midst of following the work and the dictates, the goals that have been set for him by God, he is still willing to look out for the needs of the widow, especially when her son dies. People died. He was compassionate. And that, interestingly enough, I've been doing some reading in a, in a book about uh, really church leadership, and some of the most effective leaders have two single qualities within them. They set goals, so they're goal-oriented. And Elijah was goal-oriented, and they are compassionate about people. Vitally important for any one of us to have those qualities if we are to lead and serve in our churches. Then, almost three years later, comes probably his greatest public miracle. The sacrificial competition with the priests, priests of Baal. And you remember that story. In 1 Kings 18, verse 20, it says, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter? between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. They couldn't, they couldn't answer this. And then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bowls and let them choose one bowl for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. And put no fire under it though, and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood. And, and I will also not put fire under it. And then you can call on the name of your gods. And I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people said, it's a deal. We'll do this. Now Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Now this is interesting. They could have just prepared everything at the same time, right? 
Elijah does this for a very important reason, and we'll, we'll see what that is. He says, so they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made, you know, just generally dancing around and screaming and frolicking about. It must have been an incredible sight, 450 men all doing this business. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he's a god. He's either meditating or he's busy. You know, he's on another call. He's dealing with another sacrifice somewhere else, mocking them. He's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping <laughs> and must be awakened. He was having fun with this one. So they cried aloud, and then they cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When did this become their custom? Where in any of the scriptures does God say, when you do sacrifices, you cut yourself? This is in Israel. How far have these people gone? Their custom, they cut themselves. So they cried aloud, cut themselves. And when it was midday, was past. They prophesied into the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. <laughs> you know, it sounds a little crazy for us to imagine that people would do this, right? In our modern Western world, it's, this is not what people do. I'm not so sure. Have you ever been to, seen any imagery or been to an acid house party? I don't know. People do some pretty crazy things, don't they? When they get permission to do so. When the culture says that it's okay. And in fact, we've just seen some craziness in this past week, haven't we? People do cut themselves. They throw rocks at each other, and they try to murder one another. And in spite of maybe best intentions on the part of some, what comes out of all those protests comes a riot, and it just results in death. And you can't tell me that some of these prophets of Baal weren't collapsing over the, all over the place. You cut yourself and you start running around, that has some serious problems for your blood supply. So maybe it's not so far-fetched for us to see how these things can take a hold of people. These people in Israel, interestingly enough, as Steve touched on it, they've forgotten their history. They've forgotten it. And we don't read that they tore anything down, but here in a minute we'll see that a very special place was fallen down out of misuse or disuse. And it's almost the same, isn't it? Forgetting the history. Right or wrong, we need to remember our history. For these people, they were teetering on the precipice of whether God is real or Baal is real, just like us, just like our country today. Are we honestly a Christian country? I don't think we can answer that. Are there Christians in the country? Of course. But we are, I think, in a very similar place to Israel was when Elijah was trying to call them back, wake them up and bring them back to God. But then Elijah steps up with real leadership, with truth. And he shows what real leadership is about. And this, perhaps, is probably one of the biggest lessons that we can, we can remember about what leadership is about. In verse 30, he says to the people, come near to me. Come over here. So the people were all watching these priests doing all their things. Well, that hasn't worked. Come over to me. So they come near to him. 
And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down in their presence. This altar was broken down. They had forgotten about this altar. Nobody clearly had been using it. It was broken down. So Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, whom the word of the Lord, um, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. He was reminding them who they are. An important quality for a leader in a church, in a ministry, in a country, to remind people who they are, where they came from, what their relationship is to God, that his name was on them. And so he does this deliberately, right? He waited. He, did, he let the priests have their show. Now all eyes are on him. And he's teaching them a lesson of history as well as the power of God. And then with the stones, he built the altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two sheaves of seed. In front of the people. In front of the prophets of Baal. Who are by now probably collapsing, right, from blood loss. Elijah acts out this, this example, this show of restoration. The very thing that God wants to do with Israel, with this errant kingdom, he's acting out with the altar and making preparation. He's restoring it and restoring that understanding in their mind. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bowls in pieces, and he laid it on the wood and said, fill your water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And, and so the water ran down the altar and also filled the trench with water. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I always looked at this as kind of something he did to magnify God's power, right? We're going to just soak this thing and when he sends fire down, it's just going to further glorify God because of how easily he can obliterate it all. And maybe that's still part of it. But it struck me. What is the most valuable thing in a land that has had no rain for three years? Water. And he said to God, I am placing the most valuable things we have on this altar to you. Incredible imagery of the kind of love that Elijah had for God and the leadership that he's showing to these people, pointing to who the real authority is, who the real Lord is. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Perfect timing, right? The old evening sacrifice, which probably had not been practiced right at that time. Elijah the prophet came near and said, simple prayer. He said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all of these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And whoosh! Fire fell from the Lord, consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones. How hot was that fire to consume stone? The dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. How long did this take? 30 minutes, an hour? You know, he had to fix the altar. And he had to lay it all out. 
and then he had to douse it with water and to pray a simple prayer. After hours and hours of screaming and chanting and dancing around, and yet this simple process with excellent leadership, calling out to the people to remember who they are, You know, imagining that sight, the heat, the smell, the taste of everything that happened. Yeah, we would cry out, right? The Lord, he is God. There would be no doubt. Then wasting no time at all, Elijah says to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So as they seize them. Now, of course, I can't imagine any of them were going to escape, right? They're all like dizzy, passed out. They've got blood loss going on. I don't know. And they slaughter all of these false prophets, wicked prophets, that have turned the heart of the people against the real God. So they executed them there. I can't imagine what that was like. That was a bloody affair. Brutal. Such power displayed by God and such grace and mercy displayed by God. He could have just said, I'm done with these people. I'm not going to give them any demonstrations. I'm not going to give them any signs. Let them just die of thirst be done. But he has this magnificent power, this magnificent grace, demonstrates that, and then executes judgment. Because he's trying to protect his people from the evil that is in these priests. Because of course, you know, these prophets, they, they would have continued on, wouldn't they? Their heart was so hardened against God. Then in 1 Kings 18, Elijah says to Ahab, in verse 41, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. And then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up. Say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was heavy rain so that Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. And then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. When we think of a leader, someone to perhaps replace the leaders that we have had in the past, in many ways, we can't be blamed for wanting somebody like Elijah. Right? That can do a work, a mighty work, that can really turn things upside down and get people's attention. Do a powerful work in our lives and in the lives of our community and our nation. You know, in fact, when John the Baptist arrives on the scene, what happened? The leaders of the Jews say, are you him? Are you Elijah prophesied to come? Because we want that kind of leadership. We want somebody that can really lead and lead us back to God, lead the people back to God. We want somebody that can turn off the rain. We'd like it if you could turn it back on again pretty quick, too. We want somebody that can heal the dead or raise the dead, heal the sick, feed the hungry. We want a leader. We 
want a strong leader. And, that, and we've been looking for one. And maybe some of our leaders in the past have not been full of miracles. But they've been full of strength and power in the gospel. They've done great works. They've preached around the world. They've taught us. They've guided us in lots of different ways. And now, they're gone. They're moving on. And so it's natural that we would want the same sort of replacements, right? We want those strong, effective, powerful leaders who can do the things that we think we can't do. After all, even Elijah was replaced by somebody just like him, and if not even more powerful. In 1 Kings 19, we find Elijah, after all of this, running for his life. <laughs> for some reason, at this fantastic moment, he fails in his weakness in his flesh. And, and you know, physical leaders can be that way, right? And here's the Jezebel is out to kill him. So he runs and he flees. And in, in 1 Kings 19, verse 4, it says that Elijah, flee, or he, fleeing from Jezebel, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It's enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly the angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went on that strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, and torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. It's interesting, isn't it? That sometimes our leaders are... Human leaders, they, they, they're weak. They have failings. And, and we can forget that they're weak. And even the ones with the kinds of character like Elijah, they can fall into this flaw. Yeah, he was running away. Yeah, maybe he was afraid. But he also was suffering from something. He thought he was irreplaceable. I'm the only one left, you know? They're not the only ones that continue to work. They're not as important as the work themselves. Their legacy, their efforts, no matter how great a leader they may be, cannot exceed the work that God has put them to. It's something we should remember about our leaders. They can't do it all. They cannot be all-powerful or all-knowing. They make mistakes. and Sometimes they behave selfishly, just like Elijah. So the word of the Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire, a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here? Why are you here? And he said, I've been very jealous. He said the same thing. I've been very zealous for the Lord, 
God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I am alone left, and they seek to take my life. The Lord says to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, get back to work. What are you doing up here? I've got stuff for you to do. You are a leader. Act like it. Right? Perform the work that I called you to do. And he puts him back to work. When you arrive, anoint Hazel, king over Syria. And you shall also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel Menhoah, Menhoah, and you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved by the way 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed it. Yeah. Get out of your own head. Get out of your own troubles. You have work to do. And he does do that. Elijah needed to stop feeling sorry for himself. Get a grip on reality. He needed this lesson. And I dare say he needed the isolation from all that he had endured. 40 days and 40 nights is a long time. And I bet you people were wondering, where is that guy? He did all of these amazing things. And then he disappeared. What I see here from God is that Elijah needed to stop feeling sorry for himself. And as I said, just get back to work. Go anoint these men as king and get, to, get yourself this man named Elisha who will become your apprentice. Or as my boys would call it, your Padawan learner, right? Star Wars everything in our house. He's going to learn from you. He's also going to help him. He's going to help him in his ministry. And oh, I've got 7,000 men that have not bowed to Baal. And it's interesting, later on in Kings, you, you should keep reading because there's an army that actually helps Ahab. And guess how big the army is? It's 7,000 men. And I looked, and I couldn't see any way to, to say with absolute certainty that this was the same group. But it's an interesting number. Something important is going on here. Yes, God told Elijah to get back to work. But then, when he brings Elisha into it, there's a very important element that we need to consider in any area of leadership in any area of service. It's what is often called in the business world succession planning. You ever heard of that term? Succession planning. So if the CEO of the company gets hit by a bus, who steps in? Who manages from that point on? Well, how are you going to do that? Is that individual experienced enough yet? Are they trained enough yet? Can they step into that role? succession planning. And it's not about forcing anybody out. It's about preparing somebody else to take over next, in whatever role that may be, in whatever role of leadership and service that may be. The plan for one's own replacement. And so being a responsible leader is to develop a succession plan. A succession plan for business or for church? What does that look like? Because there will be a point when all leaders, all those that serve Sabbath school teachers, musicians, song leaders, in fact, musicians, Art and I were just talking about that before services. You know, he's wondering about how much time he 
can effectively play the piano. I told him about 25, 30 years. He's like, I'm not too sure I want to do that. But musicians and, and song leaders, caretakers, preachers, teachers, deacons, ministers, board members, prayer warriors, kitchen helpers, mentors of all kinds, so many roles and facets in our church that each and every one of us fill. And we need to be thinking about who is going to replace us. Who's going to do that? Who's going to take over this role, that thing? It's not about looking forward to retirement, but it's about ensuring the succession and the life of the church and giving the church the best opportunity to succeed. You know, it, just an observation, it's astonishing, really, when you think about different church organizations in our tradition that we may have been uh, you know, experienced with or affiliated with, how poorly they have done in succession planning. Intelligent, capable people just didn't plan for who would take over when they're gone. You know, it's crazy. And it, not because they didn't know about it. It's not because they weren't smart. It's just we always think we have more time. We always think we have more time. And we don't. And before we know it, it's gone. Because it takes time to prepare that next generation. You know, Elijah, when, he, when Elisha joined him, they worked together for, you know, some, say, approximately six years or so. They gave Eli Elisha time to learn, time to understand, prepare for what was going to happen. Turn, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 6. This is the time when Elijah is going to be taken away. And... All the different priests keep telling Elisha, hey, you know, your Lord is, your, your master is going to be taken away today. And he's telling them to shut, to shut up. Don't tell me that. And he loved him. He was his mentor. He was his, his teacher. He didn't want him to go. We can definitely see that in the, in the narrative. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me over to the to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on and 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance while two of them stood by the Jordan. And now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up and struck the water. And it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elijah said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. You know, and we, we look at that and we're kind of like, Well, why was he saying that? He wanted to do bigger and better things? Wanted extra powers? Or was he afraid? I'm losing my mentor here. I'm losing my guide. I, I, I'm going to be in this alone. I need, I need twice the strength that you have to help me. I need a double portion of your spirit. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me, when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And then it happened. As they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, my father. And the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And the scripture moves on pretty quick, but I imagine 
was a long period of time there. As the cloak, the mantle, floats to the ground. And then Elijah, he said, it says he took up the mantle. Elisha took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. You know, he may have been afraid. He may have been very sad to be losing his mentor, his teacher, a father figure in his eyes. He was ready. He was prepared. He was ready and able to do exactly what needed to be done and immediately stepped into that role in faith, faith in God. He's calling out, where's the God of Elijah? Right here with you. We want that, don't we? We want a leader to rise up and replace the ones but move on. I do. I want somebody to pick up the mantle, start broadcasting again, right? Start pumping out over the radio and TV and whatever format is, makes sense in, in today's world. Social media, online. I want that. I want that to, to happen again. For somebody to walk in with the power of God. Better still, somebody to walk into the Oval Office with the power of God and say, there will not be any more rain until I say so. Don't we want that? And maybe it won't happen exactly that way, but we want leaders that take the message to the nation, to the world, and communicate the truth of God and the plan that he has for each and every one of us. But then we have Isaiah 58 and verse 6. We have to think about this passage. Because while God has definitely called people in the past to be these great leaders like Elijah and Elisha, he has also begun a work in us. And we need to not find ourselves in some mountain cave somewhere, maybe spiritually speaking, afraid because we've lost the leadership that we had before. We need to perhaps fill that gap. He has begun a work in us that is much more like that still small voice that God showed on his holy mountain. It's the still small voice inside of each and every one of us that can prompt us to talk to our neighbor, to share with our friends and family, to plead with the world that is out of control, to return to God, to rebuild the altar. Breaking into this beautiful passage, it says in verse 6, Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, that you bring your house into your house the poor who are cast out, and when you see the naked, you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Does that sound familiar? If you turn to Matthew 25, 31, it's the same things that Jesus is re rewarding those that have done to others in his name and for him. That when they were hungry, he gave me food. When they were thirsty, he said, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. Same thing. And it was also the same mission that Jesus was given. You remember, just a few pages over in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, right, to preach 
the deliverance to those that are in chains. To restore. To bring about that restoration. Very much like what Isaiah, what Isaiah I mean, Elijah and Elisha brought about. Because God has still reserved 7,000 men who have not bowed them, figuratively speaking. We are it. We are part of the 7,000. We have that role. If the Spirit of Christ is in us, then the mission of Christ is in us. He says in verse 8, Then your light shall break forth like the morning, and your healing shall bring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of your of the Lord shall have your back. It'll be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry. What shall we cry? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he will answer. He will say, I am here with you. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall shine, shall, your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you, those from among us, us, shall build the old waste places. You shall rise, raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Just like Elijah, rebuilding and restoring and reminding people who they are where they've come from, that they are the children of God. Elijah and Elisha were great leaders, great servants of God. And there's a prophecy yet to be fulfilled, isn't there? But we see another coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah again. We have also had great teachers, great evangelists, great preachers, Who knows? Perhaps God will rise up others in the future. I don't know. But what I do know is that regardless of if he does or does not, the work of God must continue. And that means through us. Each one of us working according to our gift. Please, as you work in those gifts, as you seek to exercise and use those gifts, remember your succession planning. Now's the time to prepare the next generation to fill the role that you 